Try again? Ah, there we go. Okay. Well, it's great to be here with you. It's great to see all the moms and daughters and grandparents, grandmothers and grandchildren, and it's exciting that you're all... Um, oh, dear. <laughs> exciting that you're all here together. Um, I understand that there, there might be up to how many others here? I mean, people here today? 50 to 100, somewhere in there? Yeah? <laughs> okay. Well, it's interesting to me to find out who is the oldest mom here, or grandmother, or great grandmother. So, is there anybody who would point out that wonderful woman? <laughs> Can we have her stand up? <laughs> Why don't we? <laughs> I'm not sure, you know, how old you ladies are, but somebody who knows you can tell me who's the oldest one. 95 and 97. Oh, let's give them a hand. That's great. <laughs> Thank you all for being here, showing an interest in your younger generations. <laughs> um, what about the youngest daughter here? Who's the youngest daughter here? One little baby. Aw, very nice. You know, the, the mother-daughter thing is kind of generational, of course. My husband likes to point out that if your mother never had kids, you won't either. <laughs> so, yeah. You are most blessed, all of you, who are daughters. We're all daughters. And many will grow on to be mothers and grandmothers and great-grandmothers. You've survived great-grandmothers, you've survived great changes in your lives, I'm sure. And that is the theme that we're here to discuss, about God always staying the same in the midst of change. Um, life is full of challenges, changes, often in relationships, especially uh, between mothers and daughters, there's some conflict or stress. And you all know that, I'm sure. Seems like we felt like when our children were little, you spend the first two years teaching them to walk and talk, and the next five years teaching them to sit down and be quiet. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> um, I'd like to read some verses out of Psalm 102, which... Lori shared with me, and I thought we were very appropriate for tonight. And nobody else has scheduled to read them, I guess. So Psalm 102, verse 25 and following, talking about God. Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you will endure and all of them will wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. The children of your servants will continue 
and their descendants will be established before you. Isn't it reassuring to know that God created the heavens and the earth? If anything changes, he causes it. He knows about it. It says here um, that, where is it? Right here. Like clothing, you will change them. We all know about changing clothes several times a day, don't we? Daughters especially, <laughs> especially teenage daughters. They will be changed. God will change things. It's not something that we need to be afraid of. We need to be aware that it's God who's making those changes in our lives. And he does not change. That's what these verses tell us. And we can take comfort in that, and we can face the challenges that come along. Um, there are lots of things to remember when you're raising a child. You know, you don't want the child to run your life, but you don't want to be um, a mother who is always demanding and pushing and deciding things for them, especially as they grow older. And some children are more difficult than others. We all know that. You might wonder, why did God send me a difficult child? And what does he expect of me with all my own imperfections and shortcomings? How come I cannot be the perfect mother? Or in relation with daughters to their parents, how come I cannot be the perfect daughter that my mother wants? The stresses are often there. Well, the answer is you can't. You cannot be a perfect mother or a perfect daughter. It's just not going to happen here on this earth. We won't be able to be face perfection until we get to heaven. And we'll never be perfect in this life, but we can make an effort to follow God's plans for us and to make a difference in the lives of our children or our parents. It works both ways. It works up and it works down. His plans that that God has put into the scriptures and the commands that he has given us. Um, the one that I want to talk about tonight is from starting with Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20. Go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. You know, that was given to Jesus' disciples, but... Are we not disciples of Jesus if we are believers in him? If we have him as our heavenly father, we are his children. He wants us to be disciples as well. He's given us some help along the way. He's given us his word. That's the authority that we are to live by, not to listen to voices that come to us from various places around the world, but to go to the scriptures and say, this is what God wants me to know right here and to do the work of studying it and applying it in our lives and becoming disciples ourselves, because that's what's going to help us with our children. We're going to use that discipleship. We want them to be disciples of God, too, not disciples of us. We don't want them to be mini-me's. Uh, we want them to know God as their father and to be the people that he wants them to be. A bit later, I'll share some of the challenging things from my life of, of living in Africa, especially as a missionary mom in Zambia. But again, I want to look at a passage from Hebrews. Hebrews 
chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. And I have to confess that I am, have been studying this because it was something, I, a theme of um, a ladies' missionary meeting that I spoke at last month. So it was just a good stepping off place to continue using those verses out of Hebrews. So, Hebrews 12, 1 to 3. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Isn't that a great passage? The chapter before tells us all about the past witnesses of we are to learn from about faith and how they endured. This chapter gives us some hope. And as you read on, it talks about discipline and discipleship and so on. But those three verses, I'd like to just point out some things that occurred to me while I was studying them for another meeting. Um, everyone who is a believer in the Lord, obviously, is a disciple. These verses tell us we're in a race, and each one has her own race to live. We might share some parts of that with other people, but it's a race that's uniquely designed for us by God. I'd like to look at it first from the point of view of what this race is not. It is not a competition. Most races we think about here, there are people competing to be the best, to be the first. This race is not a competition. You and I are not striving to be the first to the finish line or to beat someone else there anyway. But we're striving to reach a goal. So if you think about our lives that way, there is no room for competition or comparison. We each have our own race. God knows uh, the race that he gives us. And we can't look at somebody else and say, oh, she has it so easy. No, it's not like that. Uh, this race is not a sprint. You don't have to run to get to the end. Because <laughs> the goal is, speed is not the goal of this race. Discipleship is. It's more like a marathon, you could say, where the race goes on and on and on, and you have to pace yourself, and you do finally get to the end. And it's not also not an optional race. You may not like the race that you've been given, but God gave it to you for a reason. He knows what that reason is, and he may show you someday, but you may not know right now. Still, if you belong to Christ, you are in a, a participant in a race, and whether you cooperate with him and what he's doing in your life is up to you. That's a choice you have to make. This race is not an easy race. It's an ongoing race, and there's an ancient Greek word that's used in this passage is the word agona. What does that sound like to you in English? 
Agony, that's right. It means conflict or struggle. So expect some agony in your race. And it's not just a physical race. Yes, this race will affect not only your bodily health, but also other things, your wealth, your relationships, your emotions, your mental growth, your spiritual growth are all involved in this race. It's not easy and it's not just physical. So what kind of race is it? This is a race with a goal. I'm talking about me, but you as well. There's a goal here for me to reach. What is it? If we look at verse 2, Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith. Aha! That's what this race is about. He wants to perfect our faith. It's not going to be perfect here on earth, but it's going to grow. It's going to build, and we're going to get closer. This is God's plan, and it's his race. He, he planned it for me, and he has a plan for each of you. And that goal is to become more and more perfect in our faith in him. This race is unique to me or unique to you. Nobody can run the race for me, even though I might wish they could. We may all run together for a part of the time, but we won't be with each other forever. Again, we don't need to compete or to compare. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus, who's the one that's going to help us become perfect in faith when we get to be with him. This race includes struggles and conflicts and stresses that will be different for each person. This race also comes with an instruction manual from God, the scriptures. Our Bible is given to us to help us. You don't often see racers carrying heavy volumes around with them as they race. Um, they don't stop to consult something or someone in the middle of the race. So this is a different kind of a race. But this race also gives me not only an instruction manual, but a helper and a guide. And that's the Holy Spirit who's come to help us in our life here on earth, in our race. Um, our job is to do a couple of things and not do some other things. <laughs> uh, first, the first verse says that we should look at the cloud of witnesses. We have a great cloud of witness, witnesses. Now, a lot of times I think, oh, I don't want them all watching me. <laughs> you know, That's not really technically what it means. It means we should be watching them. We should be studying them. They are witnesses to us. All these the scriptures about Abraham and Moses and Noah and all those in chapter 11, they're given to us for our encouragement. We should learn from them. It also tells us that we should, oh, let me just say that Racers are not supposed to look back, right? You're supposed to look for the goal. And we, are, we do have a goal, but here we're to learn from those who came before us, who pleased God and learned from him. God wants us to. He says, look at them. He also says, look ahead. Look ahead at Jesus, who's the author of our faith. He was there in the beginning. He's the one who died for us. He's the one who gave his life for each one of us, and our faith is totally in him, not in ourselves, not in anyone else around us. 
So we look ahead at the one who's at the finishing line seated there by the throne of God. That gives me hope that um, I don't have to look at other people. I don't compare myself to them. I look at Jesus and I see him ahead and that gives me strength for going on. There's another instruction, laying aside things. We're to lay aside every encumbrance and sin and we're to run with endurance. Now, laying aside can mean getting rid of things. They could be sins in our lives. Those are important to lay aside, to identify them and take them out of our lives as we can. But they could be things that are just holding us back. For example, uh, I think of my nearly two-year-old grandson, Jonathan. He loves to wear my slippers. And then he'll fall down the stairs because he's trying to run down the stairs with my slippers on. You know, those are encumbrances to him. Or a runner, for those of you who are into sports. What if you tried to run with huge mud boots and a heavy winter coat and goggles? Nothing wrong with wearing those things when you run, but they're going to encumber you. They're going to hold you back. So we need to be thinking about things that hinder us, things that will keep us from focusing on Jesus. It could be books, TV, movies, things that feed our bad habits. It could be our phone, which is a very useful tool, but can we waste time on it? Yes, we can. (laughs) So... We should, each one of us, think about what's hindering our life from focusing on Jesus. We may have some unhealthy habits that are not wrong in themselves, but that will hinder us from effectively serving the Lord or striving to reach the goal of perfecting our faith. We may have gifts that we are careless with how we use them. These are not necessarily sins, but they are things that can hold us back. Also, all of our quote, support systems that we have. We have our home, we have our car, we have our job, we have our clothes, we have our activities, our worldly possessions, we have people that we love, and all of those are, can be important, and they're all part of our lives, but we should not rely on them for our uh, running our, running our race. Um, another thing about getting rid of sin is just disobeying the word of God. Is That's what the sin is. Things that we love in this world, things that are merely shadows of what will come when we're in heaven with Christ. Wrong relationships that might keep us from following in a committed manner, from running the race that God has put before you or me, which are, of course, different, as we said. Things like greed or pride or loving ourselves, those things can get in the way of us focusing on Jesus. When God makes changes in our lives, he does it for a reason. We don't always like it, but we need to trust him because he's a good God and he provides for his people. Endurance. What is endurance? Well, It does not mean that you sit down and you accept defeat when you're tired or you're worn out. 
But it means that instead you attack an, um, uh, a job painstakingly, and you learn it as well as you can. Someone who masters something, like I'm really challenged by technology here. <laughs> I grew up in Africa. Give me a break. <laughs> um, but if I really cared about that and how to use that, I would learn. I would sit down and study it, and I would force myself to learn about it and how it works and how I can get over those obstacles that are holding me back. Fortunately, I have a husband and children who know how to do it all, so I don't need to learn. <laughs> um, endurance does not hurry, but it does strive to complete the tasks that are given to it. Endurance does not delay obedience to God's will. Endurance does not lose heart because Jesus endured hostility and shame and the death of the cross so that I might have hope. Endurance goes on steadily and takes time to know God through his word and prayer. Endurance submits to the slow but steady working of the Holy Spirit in her life. Endurance seeks to follow God's will, whether it's great or small. We don't have to be world leaders to, be, uh, to endure things. We, we have a lot of little things that we have to look after, but we can endure through them and learn from them. Endurance fixes her eyes on the one who despised the shame and endured the cross. And endurance serves with joy because there is hope ahead. If I had time, I'd go on to the other verses, but I won't do that tonight because I do want to share some things about my missionary life. This first part from Hebrews, I like to call that the marathon mama. Read it and learn from it. Um, now, if I can get this thing to come on. Is it there? It's there. Okay. Uh, the latest place where we served as missionaries is Kalani Mission in Zambia, Africa. And there were lots of challenges in any missionary life, but there are also lots of blessings. I'm thankful that the Lord has me here today to be able to repeat some of this to you. And I know you would have stories to share with me as well. You heard from my bio that I grew up as a missionary in, kid in Africa. I was born in Sudan back in the 1950s. That little blonde kid is me. And that's my dad sitting behind me. And my mom in the front with one of my baby sisters. Um, there were five of us children in our family. One was born in Egypt, and the rest were born in Sudan. And this photo uh, is just, I want to share with you, it's proof. I was there. <laughs> and all the missionaries were sent out, and uh, we were among them. This is a very short version, okay? After a furlough at, in Michigan, we went to Ethiopia. My parents were reassigned to do a different job. And as we grew up, my parents had faithfully taught us the gospel. We memorized the scriptures. We 
knew, um, you know, all the Bible stories, <laughs> and my parents modeled the Christian life to us. But unfortunately, for some reason, I had the mistaken mindset that I'm okay. My parents are Christians. Actually, they're even missionaries. And I go to a Christian boarding school, a mission boarding school, so I'm okay. <laughs> and because my, all my friends come from missionary families, I don't have to worry. No, that's wrong. I had the wrong idea. And when I was about 12, When I was about 12, I became convicted that those relationships could not work for me. They could not save me. I knew I was a sinner. I knew that already. I knew that Christ, God's son, had suffered and died for my sins. And yet, it didn't really connect until I was 12 years old and I was listening to somebody preach somewhere in Ethiopia and suddenly something connected. It's a long time ago, but I know that at that point, I put my faith in Christ and in what he had done for me on the cross. Another human being's supposed righteousness is not good enough. It's the righteousness of Christ that we need. So that was the turning point in my life. I came to understand that I had to have, and I wanted and I needed, a personal relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. That decision was the beginning of a wonderful personal relationship with the God of the universe. Um, as I studied more and more in high school and in college, and as I became a teacher, you know, I learned a lot. God allowed, as I allowed God to lead me, then he took me through some places in America and back to the mission field. <laughs> so um, I taught school in California, and then... I went to Kenya, and there I met my <coughs> husband, John, who had come to serve with Aim Air. And we, were, we met in Easter time, and we got married in December, so it was a short relationship, but I was already, you know, 28, turned 29, and John was already 30. My mom said to me when I told her I was engaged, she said, well, you were 19. I'd tell you to wait, but go ahead. <laughs> So, yeah, we got married in Kenya, and we lived there for five years. Um, John was a pilot at that time, and then after that, we moved to Tanzania. Again, John was doing mission aviation. We lived there for seven years, and then we moved to Zambia in 1996 and lived there for 22 years. So that's the last year we came home from Zambia. Right one? Yes. John spent a lot of years trying to fly by flapping his wings or jumping off his mom's garage roof <laughs> when he was little. And when he was, I don't know, 13 or so, he realized, hey, I can be a pilot and a missionary. I can serve God in two ways. He'll tell you more about that tomorrow if you're here in the service. <laughs> so since 1984, he's been flying up until this past year. And that's what makes him happy. He's also a fully qualified aircraft mechanic. Here are some of the countries that I, we've passed through in my life. 
I don't know if you can see up there. I don't have a pointer. Sudan is the big brown country, sort of off to the north there. Sudan, Ethiopia is next to it, also kind of brown. Then you go down to Kenya, which is green. And uh, Tanzania is the red one below that. And touching Tanzania is this funny-shaped country. That's Zambia, that little light one in the middle. Closer up view. <laughs> the assembly missionaries have worked in Zambia for many years. Kalani Mission was begun in 1906 uh, by a doctor who came out from the UK and started the hospital. Um, it's located, I don't think I can show you without a pointer, but do you see the, the part of Zambia where it goes flat and then sort of up straight? There's a little tiny little thing that sticks up into the next country, Congo. That's where Kalani Mission is, in that little narrow strip of land up there. Also, Sakeji School is in that area. It sticks up between the Democratic Republic of Congo and Angola. So that's where we've lived for the last 22 years, and our children have grow, basically grown up there. It's a sort of funny-shaped, landlocked country. Um, and the population is about 16 million, growing all the time. There are many orphans because of AIDS epidemic. English is the official language, but there are more than 70 tribal languages. I think that's why they chose English to teach in their schools, so that everybody could communicate no matter which tribe they grew up in. Uh, some of Zambia's countries, there's eight of them that surround there, they've had their problems, unrest, political turmoil, but Zambia has remained politically stable, but they often suffer because they don't manage their resources very well. I read this verse to you. This is a great commission that our Lord gave to his disciples, and we are his disciples. So wherever we are, whether you're in Africa, or Asia, or the United States, or somewhere else, the Lord can use you to make disciples, whether it's your own children. Somebody who leads the little ones to the Lord is a blessing, very great blessing. So we... John and I committed to using the skills that we had learned. I became a teacher, he became a pilot, and we went to Africa to use those skills, as well as teaching the good news to those that we could. Uh, I think I've given you that story. That's one of the planes we had. We served with mission flight services at Kalani Mission. The man in the picture is Bruce Poivin, our colleague who started the flight service in 1993. Both of them had a lot of other jobs besides being pilots. We had need mechanics and, and um, managers and other <laughs> official sounding jobs, but mostly a lot of paperwork too. <laughs> There's the airstrip seen from the air. In the background, uh, you can see a big green area, clump of trees. That's Kalani Hill, where the first mission was started on top of the hill. And uh, after the patients got tired of walking up there to find help, <laughs> they built a mission down on the lower level, the, the flatter ground, you could say. There's a lot of buildings scattered in the trees next to the airstrip. That's the mission with the hospital 
and there's a school there. And so that's where we've spent our last 22 years. Did you know that airplanes have names? They do. And they have num letters and numbers on the side. So, meet 9J Fox Mike Charlie. <laughs> 9J Fox Mike Charlie has eight seats. Uh, that's the one, well, you can see which one has that letter, those letters on. It's a Cessna 207. And the other one is a Cessna 182, and it's called Romeo Fox Juliet. Nine Juliet. Romeo Fox Juliet. The letters mean something in aviation language. <laughs> in the background, you can see there's a storm coming. So, flying is challenging in places where there's not much navigational equipment. And so everybody needs help when they're flying in over Africa and there's not much uh, radio communication. My work at the hangar involved handling bookings, flight bookings, email correspondence, some accounting, especially when our colleagues went on furlough. In early days, I did it by HF radio, as you can see in the background there, and that you had to you could actually talk to the pilot on the radio. He would call you every half hour and report certain things that you had to write down. You were the keeper of the information, like the black box in the aircraft. How much fuel, how many passengers, that sort of thing. Um, we also communicated with the missions that we were flying to to find out what the weather was like or tell them when we were going to be landing. So nowadays, we flight follow on the internet. It's a, Special program, either Bruce's wife or I would do it every time a, a plane was in the air. We could do it at the office, we could do it from home, so we could continue on with our activities that needed to be done. Uh, a signal is sent out on this program, which is called spider tracks. Does it look like spider tracks to you? Those, red, those green dots represent a six minute interval, and then it will ping another location there, so you can tell where the plane is at all times. And it's, it can also tell you things like the time, the latitude, the longitude, the altitude, the speed, uh, the direction, and so on. This is help, helps you if a plane goes missing or something happens, you have a record. That's why you did it by hand, writing everything down before, but now it's done this way. Once in a while, they could send a short message like, landed safely, that's the one you hoped to hear. <laughs> They could change the color of the dot if there was a weather problem and then you knew that they were struggling, maybe going around out of the flight path. Um, in recent years, you could actually send messages back and forth, so it didn't work very well <laughs> with the weather. Anyway, why do we have planes in Zambia? Because it gets very wet in the wet season. At the beginning, the grass grows tall. Then it gets more slippery and mucky and electrical storms come along and the heaviest rains are between January and March. And the water has nowhere to go so it cuts its own path down the main road from Kalani Mission to the outside world. So deep, you can walk in it. Flying is a lot easier than trying to navigate roads like this. Oh dear, can you still hear me? Okay. <laughs> okay. So. Yes, by the end of the rainy season, you're almost guaranteed to get stuck somewhere along the way. The ground is so saturated already, and then these heavy storms come along without warning, and the water has nowhere to go, and neither do you, because you're stuck. 
You have to wait sometimes. Just wait for someone to come along and pull your vehicle out. Even big buses and huge trucks get stuck. On flat roads, the water just sits there and they sink into the mud. It's kind of like, um, okay, I'll get there tomorrow sometime. <laughs> this is our car. We used the same road the next day and the, the spray just came up over us. We did get through. This is a collection of car parts that we had to replace from the bottom of the underside of the car. You know, things like a sway bar and You've probably heard your husbands or sons talk about those things. <laughs> so it was very hard on the vehicles. Sometimes it was hard on, um, in another way, hazardous. Even paved roads can be hazardous if it's wet and the edges of it are not firm and it's not tapered nicely and there's a bicycle coming at you, you're swerving to go around the bicycle and your wheels get off the edge of the road, and something like this can happen. The lorry, the truck, was hauling loads of diesel, petrol, avgas for our airplanes, freight for the various people, and hospital. It's a journey of 12 hours one way. Fortunately, no one got hurt. Hurt, yeah, I shouldn't say that. They got hurt, but no one was killed in this accident. So we just thank the Lord for the... But you would really rather fly, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> Instead of traveling two rough, long days by road to get to the nearest big town, the flight service can take you there quickly. And he might even let you take you via Victoria Falls and let you have a close-up of these world-famous things. In Lusaka, most flights often ended up in Lusaka. And this is a guest house that we ran because there was no place cheap enough for missionaries to stay with a good quality. And a lot of people would come. They'd have to wait overnight before we could fly them somewhere, or we'd bring them to the Lusaka, and their flight was the next day, so they had to have a place to stay. So we started this uh, guest house in Lusaka. And it became known as the flight house and was a real blessing to people. One of the services the Mission Flight Services provides is grocery shopping or whatever kind of shopping you need. If you give the pilot a list, he'll bring those things back if he can possibly do it in the time that he has in Lusaka. Some guys, some passengers were helping John that time at the supermarket. Um, all the luggage, all the shopping, and all the passengers have to be carefully loaded before you can go back to Kalani or whatever mission you want to go to. Sakeji Mission School, who's heard of Sakeji School? Buddy? Okay, good. That was located about an hour's drive from us. Our children all went through Sakeji School, but most of the student, all the students are boarding students. Our children would go and live at the school. And one of the services we provided was bringing students from Lusaka or other places around Zambia so that they could come to school, stay for one term, then they go home, also by plane. Parents loved this service especially in the wet season. Kids liked it too. <laughs> they don't want to drive for two days either. This is our son Josh in the middle of these two taller boys. As our children grew up and left Sakeji, they went on to school in Kenya, Rift Valley Academy, a Christian boarding school run by AIM, outside of Nairobi. 
And the way to get there was to fly three hours from Kalani to Lusaka. And sometimes you'd have to wait overnight to get your international flight, which would take four hours of flight from Lusaka to Nairobi. And then you'd have to wait in Nairobi to other, for other students to arrive and fill the bus that was going out to the school, and then we'd drive for two hours. So these could be very long days for the students. Those two other guys, Josh is almost as tall as them now, but back then he was pretty short. This is Joanna Lake, who is another colleague of, of ours in the flight service, and she's a midwife, so she would help out at hospital. She took the burden of arranging a flight for this child to get to Lusaka for treatment. Other medical things were often, patients were often taken as well. The flight service had a special mattress that was called a deflatable mattress, kind of like a bean bag inside to stabilize patients so that you wouldn't injure them further as you load them into the airplane. So the patient would be placed on the mattress and then the sides rolled up and they'd be strapped tight to keep that patient immobile, carefully lifting him onto the plane. And time can make a difference. A flight can be a life-saving thing. This is Kalani Mission Hospital. I don't want to spend too much time on that because I've never worked there. I'm not a medical person, but as I said, HIV AIDS is widespread and lots of other common diseases and not so common ones like malaria, for instance, and TB is growing again and measles can make epidemics. And of course, uh, the big one in Congo, which is, help me out here. <laughs> Ebola, right. At one point, they were checking everybody who flew into Zambia or arrived at a border crossing, checking your body temperature, checking things to see if you had brought any germs with you. So Kalani Mission Hospital has a big job. It's not the highest level of hospital, but it is clean and very good compared to some of the other hospitals you would find in Zambia. Some of the spiritual outreaches we had, this is the assembly, Kalani Mission Assembly, on the grounds of the mission. John would preach there. Sometimes he'd go out to other villages. Uh, this is the annual conference held out in the bush. When we go camping, we want tents and we want, you know, lots of things that you cannot have at a conference in Zambia. You don't bring a tent, but you go out and you cut the tall grass and you build a little shelter like this of tall grass. I'll show you pictures in a minute. It's open to the sky. So if it happens to rain, you get that blessing. <laughs> some, they would come from far away, some from Congo or near Angola. There's the, these are the cabins, <laughs> the open to the sky shelters that were made for sleeping in. It's a five-day conference. Sometimes, I don't know if you can see, there's a cooking fire or stones for cooking in the middle there. Uh, sometimes the fires would get out of control, the wind, and then it would spread to the shelters and people had to run to get their belongings out of there. So, but it was worth it to them to gather together with other believers. Uh, how am I doing? I don't wind it up. Okay. <laughs> John teaching about baptism. There's a baptism in the Zambezi River. John always likes to say, you just have to watch out for the crocodiles. Our son, all of our sons and daughters got baptized at Kalani in a stream similar to this. 
and then after the conference ends, we, after the baptism, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. This is Chifuafa Village Assembly. You can see it's um, brick and corrugated roof. That's it. Benches for sitting on. This assembly was struggling because there were not many men there and no good, none who were able to teach. So John was asked to go and do that, help out there. We don't know Lunda that well, so we often took some of the discipleship class students that John was doing. He'd bring them along to translate. And you can see one of them there standing near the, the tire rim. That's the bell to ring or when you want the Sunday school to start outside under the trees because the parents, they would take their time before they'd get there. So while they were coming, we had a good Sunday school with the students. Lots of singing, good Bible teaching. There's John teaching with the help of a translator. Um, air conditioned because of the lack of gap, the gaps in the structure. <laughs> That was necessary because sometimes with the metal roof, it got really, really hot in there. Or on rainy days, you couldn't hear the preacher. This is our son and daughter-in-law. And after the service, often the ladies would have prepared a meal for us, a local Zambian meal. So first, they bring water to wash your hands because you're going to eat with your hands. And the meal comes served in these bowls, and you reach in and grab what you want. These are our two daughters and and our son, who happened to be there at the same time. It's called nshima. Nshima is those white mounds that are in one bowl. It's um, either corn or cassava. The greens there are probably some kind of leaves, maybe pumpkin leaves or spinach leaves. There are cooked beans, lunda beans. They have a special flavor. <laughs> you eat everything with your fingers. Sometimes the guests get spoons, but not always. Special guests get to eat inside, but the ladies and the children eat separately from the men, always, even their homes, and uh, they usually ate outside. Here I'm sitting next to some of the ladies. One of them knew English fairly well, and French, and a bit of Swahili, and I know some of those too, so we could communicate. She had been educated, but the other women in the congregation don't read or write, so they wanted me to teach them. I don't know Lunda, but I know that Mama Belita does. And so I, I procured all the reading materials that I could find that would help her. So she's hopefully still working with those women, teaching them to read. Kalani Mission Book Room sells Bibles and hymn books. This is Mr. Frank. Um, he was once a drunkard. His life was a mess. But he met the Lord through the witness of one of the missionaries at Kalani, and he's been living for the Lord for many years, and he runs our book room. He's the clerk there. This is the discipleship class. They meet in the book room to study God's word. Sometimes they go out to the village and do some teaching, and lots of women and children come along. They just are curious at first, but they end up hearing God's word, and so spiritual fruit comes from hearing the word of God. The Tepsi Evangelism program, some of you know about. This is our son went to that program. This is him using the, the sketchboard in Lunda. He translated it into Lunda and showed the older men how to use it. So they, they would take the artboard to the hospital, OPD, for instance, or out to the market 
and do some open-air evangelism. Sakeji Administration Building. Not only did our children attend there, but I, I often had, went there to help teach because there were not enough staff. And my children were students. I didn't want them to suffer, you know. So I knew I could help out. And that's their goal, to educate, train, and care for students in ways that honor God and follow Christian patterns of learning and living discipleship, basically. So that was us around 2002 when we first got involved as dorm parents, and I did teach a Bible class, and it just sort of skyrocketed from then. <laughs> if any help was needed, they would ask me, are you available? So I taught grades three and four. Our daughter and son are in there. This is another five and six. This is, I taught language from grade two up to grade nine, you know, just moved around everywhere. So any way that I could help. And to me, that was worth it. It was a struggle, but it's, these are lives. These are the future. These are children that need to know the Lord. And so they learned. And I had a part, small part in that. And they may someday be the future leaders of Zambia. This is just a, um, a lady who worked for me. She became my friend. We had, she had many children, two more than I have, three more than I have. And some of them were the same ages, so we'd talk about children, we'd pray together, and uh, she was a good friend, still is a good friend. Well, there's Nathan, I think. He had a heart for the gospel. He also had a heart for this young lady who is his, now his wife. They were married in Zambia. Her parents live in Salwazi, a big town. And then there's our first grandchild, Jonathan Miji. He'll be two in August. That's your, the traditional way to carry your baby on your back. She still does it on the side. It's getting more difficult now because grandchild number two is on the way. <laughs> so there they are at Tepsi graduation just last week. In the middle, there's our son Josh, and then Nathan and his wife, and Jonathan. So they came to join us in the States last November after she finally, after a long time, got her uh, visa and her green card. So she did it the proper way, and here she is. Our daughter, Jeannie, learned to teach, it, and she went back to Zambia to Sakeji School to do some student teaching. She found a job in the Bahamas. Now she's in Rwanda teaching at a Christian school and hopes to come back to Tepsi and learn more about evangelism, too. Our daughter, Julie, had a lot of international friends in high school and in college. Right now, she's finishing up an internship working with a, a refugee resettlement agency in Iowa. So I'd like to pray for her. This is Josh's graduation last year. Before graduation, some things happened at Kalani Mission back in March of last year. There was unrest in the community. The Lunda people are known for being excitable. <laughs> and there were stresses and strains of the, at the hospital because there were no missionary people working there anymore. Just over the years, all the medical missionaries had left. One man came out just to do administrative work. He wanted to return to his home. People refused to let him. He was to fly out with one of our planes one day. And instead, early at five, four or five in the morning, we hear all these people running around our airstrip, our house, our, our hangar, chanting, yelling, and then surrounding the hangar fence. And it was a bit threatening. We were a bit 
weary, wary of what was going on. Turned out that if we had flown this man out, they would have stoned the plane. Well, because of all the other, some other difficulties in, with the land and was the government going to take over the hospital and things like that, uh, the CMML Health Board, <coughs> excuse me, withdrew from Kalani Hospital. It's no longer a mission hospital as such because there are no missionaries involved in it. Support from overseas was often mostly withdrawn, so they're struggling. Um, the flight service decided they couldn't operate in a community that would just throw stones. People would get hurt, equipment would get hurt. It's not a good way to run a flight service. So they withdrew. We packed up everything. We packed up the buildings of the health flight service, our homes, we gave away our stuff, we sold our stuff, because we were going on furlough. The other families were gonna move somewhere else. So right now, we don't have a home in Zambia. We don't have any furniture there. <laughs> we don't have a place of our own there anymore to go back to. Do we want to go back? Yes, and we had planned after furlough that we would go. We would have, we did retire from the flight service because John says, I'm 65, I'm getting older, I need to just, you know, let somebody younger do that job. So at this point, um, we were leaving Zambia, giving away everything. We had two suitcases each. <laughs> that was our life. We went to Josh's graduation in Kenya while we were there. All of our travel money was stolen. Laying aside, this is what's laying aside, okay? Your home, your stuff, <laughs> your money. We still had our tickets and our passports, so that was good. Trust the Lord. And uh, our whole family had been there with us, so Jeannie and Julie, they lost their money too. Whoever went through our stuff took only money, even though it was Zambian, some of it, and Rwandan, some of it, as well as dollars. That was gone. but. We carried on. We flew out on the way between Kenya and America, landed in Switzerland. We had the whole day there. I checked my emails, find that my father had passed away the day before, which was a big blow. Not unexpected totally, but a surprise because we had made a special trip to see him a few months, six months before that, knowing it could happen any time. But as he lingered and lingered, he thought, oh, I'm going to see Dad. No, it didn't happen. So everything changed again. Our plans for going to the Tepsi seminars, and then, you know, all that changed to hold a funeral instead of a graduation celebration. But there's many things here on Earth that God expects us to be prepared to give away and things that we don't need and things that he will replace when the time comes. Not relationships are kind of hard. So that's why I need the scriptures. That's why you need the scriptures. That's what gives us hope, knowing that God has a plan. We don't know about it, maybe, but he will bring everything to pass as he knows it's best for us. Set your mind on things above, not earthly things. That's become my motto. <laughs> Few, just a few quick ones flying out, leaving behind people a nice rainbow. <laughs> There's our retirement picture. <laughs> Is that what we should do when we get to America? Funeral's done. Tepsi has offered us um, 
possibility of being involved. So we decided, no, we're not going to just retire. We're going to go to Tepsi. Josh went there too. And that's where we've been for a whole year. This is some of the students doing an outreach. And to me, that's a sign that I'm in the right place. I'm helping build disciples, even though I just do office work. You know, I can be an encouragement to the young people who are involved in these things. A house the Lord provided for us, so he's given us back what we left. Uh, it's very near Tepsi. These are the students. Um, I'm glad to have a small input into their lives, and I pray for them daily as they go forth because they're running a race. They each have their own race, and I want to support them in prayer. And that's the end. I know that it can be uh, 